The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Oh, hello, creeps. Um, where are the uh, rules? There's only one rule. Are you ready? Here it is. There are no rules. Go. Welcome to The Noise Report, a podcast about music, movies, books, and other random assorted pop culture. Hosted by the music guy, CJ Plain, coming at you live from the house of fuckery. Welcome. Now let's start a riot. Now let's get out there and melt some bases! Tonight is another episode of The Noise Report. Uh, This is a very special episode because um, this one's kind of surreal. This is an episode we're going to be talking to someone. Uh, She is the daughter and niece um, of a very, a set of very famous, legendary Hollywood brothers. And um, I grew up watching both of these guys. Uh, many, many times they've been in many famous movies, and you will know them uh, on the phone with me, uh, courtesy of a site that I use to book podcast guests. Uh, her name is Cindy Mitchum Asbill. How are you tonight? I'm fabulous, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for doing this. This was this was a very cool email to get because. Um, I got way more than I expected to, and it took me a lot longer to go through them than that, but you definitely stood out because of who your dad and uncle were, and um, you you don't get a chance to, I guess, speak to Hollywood royalty, I guess is the best way to put it, because, I mean, your dad was John Mitchum, your uncle was Robert Mitchum, and I mean... You don't get much bigger in names from that era. I mean, other than most of the people they worked with, which would be like Clint Eastwood and John Wayne. So, <laughs> and they were on their level, you know. So um, I would consider that Hollywood royalty. <laughs> I mean, what was it like growing up? I mean, I couldn't imagine the the stories and what it was like seeing people like that every day and, you know, interacting and going to dinner with people like that. And I mean, it must have been so crazy. <laughs> well, it was, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley and I always said my house was the one that was filled with laughter and love. Mm-hmm. And my dad was the character actor, so he, he was friends with everybody, whether it was a stuntman or a wrangler or, right. as you said, John Wayne. And Clint Eastwood, Dad and Uncle Bob were friends with Clint Eastwood before Rawhide even. Clint painted houses with a really good friend of Dad and Uncle Bob's named George Fargo. Yes. So they knew him way back when. And so it, 
it was just normal to me. I thought that everybody's house was like mine. Right. Because, well, it wasn't just, you know, A-list celebrities that were there. Like I said, I, right. I could walk in, and, and it could be John Wayne, or it could be a brilliant step man named George Orison sitting there. I never knew. Right, so, right. I, I told Jim Jury, who was the Virginian, about a year before he passed away, I made a confession, and I said, I knew that you were famous, but I had no idea how famous you were. <laughs> and he laughed, and he said, that's because I was just Uncle Jim in the living room. <laughs> right. And, and the other side of that was, in the 60s and 70s, Dad did over 800 TV episodes. Yeah. He was constantly on TV. But... Being a character actor, he was in a wide variety of things. It wasn't just westerns, or it wasn't just right. sitcoms. He he, you know, he was a regular in F Troop, but he also did every western imaginable. But he was in the Munsters and Batman, so you know he he did anything. But when I was growing up, and people would say, "Are you related to?" They always asked if I was related to Robert. And it was confusing to me because his dad was on TV all the time and my parents never let me see Uncle Bob in the theater for things like Cape Fear, which I'm very grateful for. Right. But now it's kind of flipped around and younger people don't have a clue who Uncle Bob is, but they know who dad is from all the Dirty Harry pictures. Yes. Yes. For those of you that are unfamiliar with the work, um... John was the, uh, his character uh, was the partner of Dirty Harry, and it was three, three films, right? Yeah. Um, 800 TV episodes, 60 films, um, and one of the things that uh, I'm constantly correcting people on YouTube about, I even, it was funny when you, when you, emailed about it because one of the things I've done for so long <laughs> is every time I see somebody or I, every time I see America Why I Love Her on uh, YouTube it's almost always posted with John Wing and there's rarely a mention of your dad being the writer of that and I'm always the one who's like hey yes you know John recorded this but it was actually written by blah 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 and then people will come back, well, no, John Wayne wrote that. And I was like, um, no, as much as I love John Wayne, John absolutely did not write those words. <laughs> you know, he only recorded it. Thank you. My husband's very diligent about doing that. But there's a quote you can use, and it's a true quote that John Wayne said, John Mitchum thinks like I think, but writes like I wish I could. <laughs> Nice. I will have to definitely use that. Um, my grandfather is—he's turning ninety-five next month. And um, when I told him I was doing this interview, he's like, "Well, you're moving up in the world, boy." And I was like, "I'm moving up in the world." And he's like, "Well, he's like, you're not interviewing no-name singers anymore." He's like, "Now you're getting into the Hollywood crowd that I grew up with." And I was like, "Well, you're not that old." And he kind of looked at me sideways, and he's like, boy, I'm 95, I'm old. <laughs> um, so, and I love my grandfather. He's 95, but he still acts like he's 25. Um, he has no chill whatsoever. Um, I called him about a week and a half ago, 
see if he wanted to go to breakfast. And my nephew answered the phone. It was about 7.30 in the morning. And I said, hey, where's Grandpa? Oh, he's not in the house. I said, well, where is he? He's out in the garage changing the brakes on the Suburban. (laughs) He's got a 1977 Suburban, like a full-size Suburban. And at 7.30 in the morning, he was outside changing the brakes, taking the tires off, you know, changing the pads, changing the rotors. And I was like... I was like, tell that old man to sit down. And he's, John's like, you know, he's not going to do that. And I was like, that's true. I don't know why I said it, but um, <laughs> that's my grandfather, man. I mean, he grew up during that generation in that era. And no, it's, it's a totally different way of thinking. And yeah. it's difficult for me. I look around and I see our granddaughter's 24 and her other is, I think he's 28. I don't know, somewhere around there. And the the lack of ambition yeah. <laughs> and the lack of pride in between those generations is astounding. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I, I turned fifty one this year and I'm kind of I guess right in the middle, you know, and um You're at the top of the slippery slope. Yeah, like I my dad has been a truck driver for 52 years. Um, this is his 52nd year of driving semi. And I grew up in the front seat of his Peterbilt, basically. First seven years of my life were spent uh, living in the truck. We didn't even own a house. We just lived in the truck and traveled around. And I met, you know, every truck driver probably driving east of the Mississippi during that period. And I even got to meet Jerry Reed, which is still one of my greatest memories of having dinner with Jerry Reed. And um, it's just one of them very random things that happened. It wasn't planned. It was a total coincidence. Um they were filming Smokey and the Bandit 2, and we pulled into the truck stop, and we seen the truck, and I was all excited because I seen the snowman's truck, and I was like, Dad, Dad, that's the snowman's truck, and Dad's like, no, it's just some old trucker who's a fan, and he probably has a truck like it, and okay, it was plausible, and we went into the truck stop, and we sat down, and I had to go to the bathroom, and I got up to go to the bathroom, and I come around the corner to go towards the bathroom, and in the very back of the restaurant in a corner booth jerry was sitting there with about seven or eight other guys and i stopped dead in my tracks and i was like that's jerry reed and i ran back to the table and i told dad jerry reed's in the back of the restaurant dad's like oh it's not jerry it's just somebody who looks like him i'm like no that's dad it's jerry reed and dad's like no it couldn't be jerry jerry wouldn't be here right now and i marched right back to the table with all the determination of a seven-year-old. And I stopped in front of the table, and I looked him dead at him, you know, and he looked up at me, and he smiled, and he's like, can I help you, son? And I was like, are you Jerry Reed? And he's like, yes, I am. (laughs) I was like, I knew it was you. He's like, my dad said it wasn't you. It was just someone who looked like you. And he's like, well, where's your dad? And I was like, "He's." I pointed across the restaurant, and Jerry stood up. And he yelled across the restaurant. He's like, son, come on over here. <laughs> and my dad stood up and the look on his face 
was just so crazy. Like my dad looked at me like, holy shit, it's actually Jerry Reed. <laughs> and um, they were filming Smokey and the Bandit 2, and they were filming the driving scenes, and they were away from catering while filming it, and they got hungry, so they stopped to get food. I bet you Hal Needham was at that table. Um, he might have been. He, I don't remember everyone. There was a whole big group. It was camera guys and, you know. Yeah, I bet you Hal was there. He very, I know he had a couple stunt, st- couple stunt guys with him. He had uh, a couple camera guys. There was a big group of them. And, um, you know, we had dinner with them and we talked and laughed. And Jerry was such a. A character, you know, and uh, one of my favorite people ever, musically and acting, um, you know, and it's why I like uh, this. You know, they they don't make they don't make people, or you don't see, I guess, actors like that now. There's very few and far between that have that that factors that like your dad and your uncle and Jerry Reed. Dad's creed was decency, honesty, and integrity. Yes. And, you know, just as an aside, the very first TV series that Burt Reynolds ever did was Riverboat with Dad. Nice. Nice. I I was just... That's so funny, because I was actually just watching Riverboat, uh, an episode or two of it, and... um, it was one where your dad was, um, it was the one where your dad and the little boy, uh, where That's Mike McGreevy. Michael McGreevy, who was a Disney childhood star and then yeah. grew up to be a fabulous actor and a writer and, and producer. Yeah. It was the one where he, uh, he's like, where's Andrew Jackson? And, and uh, he's like, well, he's probably sleeping, leaving me here to do all the work. And your dad said, well... He's like, he's like, an, or he said, an angry boy is a healthy boy, or something along that lines. And, um, you know, it, I just, every time I hear that, I laugh because it's so much like something my own grandfather would say. Um, it's, he always has these quirky little saying, you know, like, if you're complaining and you're, you know, be happy if you're complaining because you're still alive or, or something along that lines, you know, and you just kind of look at him like, do you really think that makes any sense? <laughs> you know? It does, though. I know. And, it's just... And, just a funny aside, Dad never kept any memorabilia stuff. Some people have a whole warehouse full. But the one thing that Dad did keep was his guitar from Riverboat. Oh, wow. That was a beautiful guitar. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the one thing that I have is his guitar. Oh, wow. Um... The one thing I want to talk about, you're doing this because it's so important. You're either doing or it might even be finished now. The the two CD um, thing of your dad's poetry and written word and, and whatnot. And so many amazing people that are or were part of this and recorded tracks. And, you know, I... It's it's really to me. It's one of those things that you only undertake something like this out of pure love, because it would be so time consuming and so tedious to coordinate everything and get it all put together. And with today's music market, 
you know, I can't imagine <laughs> you've made much money uh, in return for it, but it's just a labor of love. Um, well, it, it happened because when Dad was actually nominated for a Grammy for right. writing the John Wynn album. Yes. And when he died, Ernest Borgnine and a legendary Hollywood producer, a guy named A.C. Lyles, who was the oldest producer at Paramount, Yes. took me aside at an event and they said what are you going to do to honor your dad and I they, they kind of got me off guard and I said uh, I guess make a website and they shook their head and they said that's not good enough kid <laughs> uh, right okay. and I got these two giants you know yeah. standing there with me and I said okay so well what am I supposed to do and they said the country Deserves, and then they shook their head. And they said, "No, needs to hear your father's poetry." Yeah. And Ernie said, "Your friends, your dad's friends, all need to pick their favorite poem and record it, and I'll be the first one to do it." So I went, "Oh, okay." So it wasn't something that my husband and I sat down with pencil and paper and said, "Oh, let's let's put on a show. Let's do this." It was kind of. We were told we had to, and when those two people tell you something, you didn't really argue. Right. But we were, like I said, I didn't realize Jim Jury was really famous, so I, I was, you know, kind of blind, and I didn't have any idea what it was going to morph into. And Ernie was true to his word, and he was the first one to pick a poem. He picked an American Boy Grows Up, which was on the Wayne album. And he recorded it. And then Dean Smith, who was a, an Olympic gold medalist and a brilliant stuntman for John Wayne and for Dale Robertson, he was going to one-up him. And he had a video man come out to his ranch in Texas and videotape Dean recording the poem that Dad did about stuntman. And then Jim Jury went up one level above that and took two poems and went to the University of Houston and recorded them and had sent them back to us complete with music. Wow. And it just kept growing. And when we thought we would be done with it, somebody else would hear about it and call me and say that they wanted to be on it. So there's 50 major Western stars and patriots that have all contacted me to be on this thing. There's 53 tracks. Wow. There's two CD discs. And because of the caliber of the people that are on it, and it really started off as a tribute to Dad, but now it's a tribute to all of them for all their love and, and talent that they put into this thing, we decided that we couldn't just have little tiny fonts. So there's a 24-page insert booklet inside the CD set with pictures and information about each of the 50 people that are in there. Wow. So it's it's a... Leonard Malton told me that there's never been anything of this magnitude ever done before. Right. And there can't be again because the greats are gone. I mean, we have Jim yeah. Russell on it. We have um, Wilford Brimley did something and James Gammon, who is gone, and Dick Van Patten. And it just goes on and on. Like I said, the, the amount of people that are on there, James Drury. Um, Randy Boone sings a song. And then that's a twist is... Bing Crosby's grandson sings one of Dad's songs because his dad did a nightclub act with Dad. And um, Susan Cowsill of the Cowsills 
sings a song, and then she does a duet with Dwight Twilley. And mm. Randy Boone, who's on The Virginian, sings one of Dad's songs. And Stefan Arngrim sings one of Dad's songs. So there's all kinds of fun little twists in it. Oh, and Roy Rogers and Dale Evans' granddaughter, Julie, sings a song, too. So it just thrilled me beyond belief. We are actually at the New Cowboys and Indians magazine that just came out today, the January issue, has the top picks for 2022. And we are one of the albums that they put on their top pick. You're there? Oh, okay, sorry, it cut out a little bit at the end. Um, yeah, it's I, I couldn't imagine the amount of work that went into it. And, um, and one of the things my my great grandma used to tell me, um, one of her famous quotes to me was, "We talked about as we get older, you know, this and that." And she one of the day she told me, she said, "You know, the worst thing you're going to recognize growing up." And I said, what's that? She's like, the worst part about growing old, she says, is watching your heroes and the people you love get old and die. And I never thought about it much over the years, but now as I see people like Clint and Mel Brooks and so many legends that are at that age, Betty White and, and Dick Van Dyke and... um Sam Elliott and so many that have passed that are so legendary for what they do, you know, you, you, you really recognize your mortality, I guess. <laughs> and yeah. And well, with this, with the CD, for a lot of them, it was the last professional thing that they ever did. Right. And that's why I keep saying it's. it started off as a tribute to Dad, but it's a tribute to all of them. And, that you know, each time someone that's on there passes away, it takes a big piece of my heart out. Yeah. But there's still young people like Jim Beaver, who's on Be Positive now, and uh, Marty Cove, who's on Cobra Kai. And, yes. Uh, so so there's a, there's a balance there. But it's the honor to the people that have, who have passed already. Is it's I'm very proud of the fact that I have the last thing that they ever recorded that it meant that much for them to do this. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's why I said I couldn't imagine this. I can't wait to hear the whole thing. Like I haven't heard the whole thing. I've heard little bits and pieces of it, but it is absolutely something that I do want to hear the the whole entire thing because I can't again I can't imagine how much how impactful uh, it will be growing up um, you know growing up my grandfather he's he, he's a he's a habit of creature you know 32 years as a as a UAW General Motors worker and the one thing that was always constant with us was schedule you know in in doing the right thing and being on time. You know, my grandpa has a, a rule of thumb. If you're 15 minutes early, then you're 15 minutes late. He'll tell you that constantly. And <laughs> it's like, wait, well, that makes you a half hour early. And he's like, that's right. He's like, that lets them know you're interested 
in whatever it is. And I was like, nobody wants you sitting around for half an hour. He's like, tough. They'll deal with it. And But even now, my grandfather, dinner time is 4 o'clock. Not 3.58, not 4.02. Dinner is on the table and ready to go at 4 o'clock. And one of the things, we would come home, dinner 4 o'clock. It was right when Little House on the Prairie would come on at 4 o'clock. And we would watch Little House on the Prairie as we ate dinner. And that was another rule we had in the house growing up. Uh, You could watch anything you wanted on TV, but you had to understand. If Annie Griffith or Michael Landon were in it, Grandpa was watching that. That was the rule. You know, (laughs) it didn't matter what night of the week or what time it was. If Andy or Michael were in it, that's what you were watching on TV. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and it was this crazy thing. Like we planned our week around it because we knew Wednesday night, you know, uh, the, um, the show Michael did with about the angel, uh, you know, we watched that and Tuesday night we watched Matlock, you know, um, most weekdays around 5.30 or so that Andy Griffith was on. So we watched that. But other than that, you know, we were good. We could watch Dukes of Hazard, and we could watch all the other great shows that we watched. My favorite show of all time, and I would love to interview him, uh, was BJ and the Bear. Um, because Dad's original truck was exactly like the truck that Greg had for that show. Um, So, you know, dad kind of jokingly called me monkey. And now my nine-year-old, we call him monkey. (laughs) So it's kind of been passed down, the whole monkey thing. Um, But, you know, Greg, again, is another person who, for so many years and so many different shows that I've loved to watch, you know, and again, going back to you, just don't see actors of that caliber now who can do so many different things and so many different styles. And um, yeah, well, it was Dad's generation were the ones that really set the bar, and yeah. they were the ones who paved the road. The actors of today, with the salaries that they make and oh, it's all crazy. their demands and their lists of what they have to have before they will even show up on set and they get a Mercedes if they do this or... Yeah. I, Uncle Bob was the first actor to make a million dollars in a year. Now, wow. you have to understand what that meant. He was yeah. under contract with RKO, with Howard Hughes. Right. And I believe he did 27 movies that year. Right. <laughs> and at one point, he was filming three different movies at the same time. And Howard Hughes would helicopter him from one set to the other each day. That's how he earned his money. Right. There was no residuals. There was no health insurance. There was nothing else until 1964. Right. That's that's so crazy yeah. to think about. I mean... Yeah. Um, well, that's why, you know, when, when you go to a film festival or something and you see these magnificent stars... We're selling their photographs for twenty dollars. That's yeah. all that they're getting. They don't get money for all the shows that are still on TV. 
Anything that's on, you know, um, whatever the prime time, old time shows are, those right. channels, they can, they can run them 24-7, and the actors, the stars, don't get a dime for it. That's crazy. But you know that the, the stars of today get paid yeah. if anybody blinks. Right. And, and 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 I totally agree. Let's have salaries. I mean, there are certain actors that I don't care for, and there are certain ones who I love. Um, I think I adore Ryan Reynolds, um, mainly because Ryan is such a character, um, you know, and he just really is kind of cut from a different cloth than most of the Hollywood type and um but there are very few and far between of actors that I truly respect nowadays and um well it's it's the old school ones yeah. that like Barry Corbin yes. being on Yellowstone now and yes. Buck Taylor and oh uh, that is such a yes. Those people obviously are dear friends of dads and I grew yes. up with all of them. So I'm just absolutely delighted that they're still yeah. out there and working and doing yeah, I'm, things. I'm so in love with that show that I I mean it's such a throwback. That one and even um what was the other one they did? Um not Lone Star, um Longwire? Yes. <laughs> that was another one that was just it was kind of a throwback to that older style you know like you just not just the acting itself but the the way they were filmed the scenery was as important as you know the i don't i guess i don't want to say the scenery the the cinematography yeah it was it was it wasn't green screen it was real yeah like the cinematography was as important um charles bronson did a film I can never remember the name of it, but it was it basically it was the one where he was uh, in Canada and he was kind of crossing the mountain or he was going through the mountains. Um, and I can never remember the name of it. But the one thing that I remember of that film, more than Charles acting, more than all the other great people in it, was the cinematography, the 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 big long takes of the mountains and the you know it was. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. Don't have it. Everybody wants to do a simple, you know, TikTok thing, or yeah. expediency instead of um, talent. Yeah, like when when Leo did that film a few years ago, where he was, you know, out in the in the, in a cold winter thing. There, um, I really loved that film mainly because of that exact reason. It was such a throwback, and it made me think of that Bronson film of the way they filmed the big sweeping landscape shots and the, the starkness yeah. of it. And, um, and did Breakheart Pass with Bronson? Do what? Breakheart Pass with Ben Johnson and... That might have been... I don't and, know if that was the one or not. You know, I can never remember the name of the stupid... I always remember the film itself because of that and, you know, it being filmed in Alaska and Canada and, the you know, the just uh, the epic, epic filming of it. Um, but I can never remember the name of it. And I really should just, for 
learn some way to commit that to the film but um so many great movies El Dorado comes to mind cuz of you know your your uncle's uh make me laugh lies in it you know such a classic scene uh, when he comes into the bar, you know, and he's like, you think this is funny? And then he hits him with the rifle and he's like, make me laugh. Um, there's, there's a funny side note there. Dad's name as the bartender was Elmer. And Uncle Bob called him that because they had a very, very good mutual friend named Elmer Jones. <laughs> but if you watch it closely, Uncle Bob screws up and calls him Johnny at one point. <laughs> I guess I never noticed. It's been a while yeah. since I've seen that one, but um Yeah, it's just one of those those blurbs. You know, it's such a powerful to me what stands out about that scene is the fact that his acting is so powerful in that scene that you forget John Wayne is actually standing there as part of the scene. And it takes a hell of an actor to make you forget that John Wayne is standing there in the scene, you know? I mean, John is such an imposing character with his size and his demeanor that, you know, I mean, it takes a hell of a performance to make you kind of forget that John Wayne is actually part of that scene, too, you know? The older I get and the more I watch Dad and Uncle Bob, the more blown away I am. And Yeah. My parents, very thankfully, never let me watch Cape Fear as a kid. Right. I've never seen. I have never seen the original. Actually, I, I, I've seen. Oh, I've seen well, the one that De Niro did. Um, no, no. De, Niro, but, De Niro's is like dishwater compared to Uncle Bob. Oh, is it? And, and because De Niro was all like a peacock strutting around with all those tattoos. Right. Uncle Bob, it was all just his facial. Yeah. Just his looks. Yeah. And I didn't see it until after I was married. And I watched it, and I called him up right away. And he answered the phone with that deep voice and said, hello. And I said, you're a jerk. <laughs> and he said, what did I do? And I said, you just scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> and, then, and he said, why? And I said, I just watched Cape Fear for the first time. Yeah. He said, well, I was just doing my job. Yeah. And I said, well, you did it remarkably well but i'm really yeah. grateful that i didn't see it as a kid because i never sat on your lap again yeah it, it, there's so many i remember i was telling my my son this my youngest one um somehow or another we were discussing horror movies and he said what's your he said what's your favorite horror movie or what's a horror movie that still scares you and i don't watch a ton of horror movies uh, but the single the most singular of all the horror movies that I've seen that still stands out to me today is the original Salem's Lot with David Soul and that um, Barlow. There has never been a vampire to me that was as intimidating or just outright terrifying as what Barlow was in that stupid Salem's Lot movie, you know, and the way they filmed it with the darkness and, um, you know, I mean, there was so many elements that, to me, that is still the quintessential horror film 
um, to all of them. Yeah. Subtlety, not going over the top and slamming it in your face. Yeah. And uh, And it takes us more skill to be restrained and hold it back than it does to be over the top. Yeah. You know, and I think that's, I, I, I've told people, I think that's one of the things that is so great about Clint is there's so many times where he doesn't have to say anything. It's the look on his face. It's the look in his eyes that sells the scene, you know, the scowl, that mean look he can have, you know. Sells the scene more than anything he could say, and um, yeah, you know, absolutely. And I, Dad loved working with Clint. Yeah, he, I can imagine. He not only did Rawhide with him, but he yeah. did actual six films with him. Right. And one of the funny, one of the Dirty Harry funnies is that <laughs> in one of them, I don't remember which one it is, but the. Two of them are sitting inside the squad car, and Clint's driving, and Dad's in the passenger seat. And there, there's not a camera, a mic inside the the car. And all of a sudden, Dad looks at Clint and literally says, "What the hell are you doing?" Because they had blocked off a lot of the, the streets in San Francisco right. for them to film, but Clint went the wrong way on a one-way street that wasn't blocked off. <laughs> while they're filming. So Clint looks at Dad and says, just, put, just shut up and put the light on top of the car. So Dad reaches down and puts the little cherry on top of the car, and off they go. And that's, they actually filmed it and kept it. But it's just a, another, another funny side. Yeah, it's, it's just like I said, they don't, it's, it's so many little things, you know, it's, it's it's so many little things that it are hard to quantify about that era. Um, and every once in a blue moon, you will see something in a modern movie or modern modern film that you can kind of tell was influenced um, well, a by a story about the CD. I had organized a group of about five, six people to go to one recording session in the San Fernando Valley. Mm-hmm. And Marty Cove was there, and my cousin Chris was there, and Denny Miller was there, and I think Dick Jones was there, and LQ Jones was was there. Oh, wow. And LQ was acting kind of funny, just kind of being a loner, like a lone wolf. And I finally went up to him and I said, LQ, what's up? And he said, well, darling, I, I really don't feel very good. I, I My back's really hurting and the doctor gave me some medication and I don't think I could give you the best performance. And I and I said, LQ, why didn't you tell me? Why, why, why are you here? And he said, because I gave you my word, word. darling, and I'm here. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I sent him home and we did it another time, but that's the core of it. That's what yeah. you're grasping at is they gave you your word and they would be there no matter what. But even more like we just watched um the TV show Nash Bridges. They just made a new um movie based, you know, or, or kind of a modern uh TV movie with 
uh, Don Johnson and and Cheech and all of that. And there were little bits and pieces of it that made me think of the Dirty Harry film so much. Um, just little... I don't think they were intended to, maybe, but you could tell that at some point the people working had... They were influenced by it. Um, from some of the car chases to just little character things that were very more throwback to that era than a modern era. And um, the way they were making fun of the whole PC thing and um, some of the lines that Don used were very Clint-ish, you know. And um, I laughed and laughed through the whole movie because... There's so many things in it that I was sitting there thinking, man, this, like if, like if, if they made a modern day Dirty Harry film, it could really be this film, you know? Um, it's, well, it, it, I don't, I don't think they could because it, it's so politically incorrect. Well, and that's what's, that's what's funny is this entire, this entire movie episode that they made was basically them making fun of everything. The, the He gets fired because he's chasing this pedophile guy and he ends up blowing up half of San Francisco uh, in the beginning to pursue it. So they basically drum him out and he becomes a private detective. And Cheech, Cheech's character, um, when they bring him back, the guy who got him fired is this very young PC type cop who has turned the police force into, you know, uh, they have yoga balls instead of chairs and everything is computerized instead of old school. And Don basically spends the entire movie just roasting all of these things about how the police force have because has become you know, so PC and how it's a bunch of crap and how he can't get any work done. And, and, um, Cheech, when he finally goes back to get Cheech, when he gets his job back, of course, what has, what has Cheech been doing for the last year? He opened a marijuana shop, <laughs> which I thought was just a brilliant part of writing because it's Cheech Marin. You know, what else would Cheech be doing if he's not a cop? Other than owning a marijuana shop and selling marijuana to the mayor of San Francisco. That's one of the things in the scene when Don Johnson comes in, Cheech is behind the counter, and he uh, he looks over and he's like, hey, mayor. And the mayor is like, uh, he's like, how are you? And he's like, great. And then he walks away and he looks at Cheech and he's like, you saw the mayor of San Francisco weed? And Cheech is like, two or three times a week, actually. <laughs> And I laughed because it was like, it was just, I don't know, it just to me, for a modern day film, the way they were making fun of all the modern stuff and the Me Too stuff and, you know, the, when he got to the police station and he, you know, he looks at Cheech and he's like, dude, I think we're in the wrong building. And Cheech is like, he's like, what the hell is this, a yoga studio? And then the young cop comes out and he's like, well, we've done this and this and this. And the whole police station, you know, it's like yoga balls and 
um, one of them has a desk with a treadmill on it, and he's walking on a treadmill as he works on his computer. And <laughs> the look on Don Johnson's face, you know, you could tell that there were certain parts where I don't think he knew what was coming because there was that kind of smirk, like he was trying not to laugh. But he wanted to. Um, So I think they were kind of hitting him with little bits and pieces just to get that reaction. Um, But, yeah, I miss – I miss, and I still watch a lot of old TV shows. I still watch The A-Team. I still watch BJ and the Bear. I still watch The Lobo Show uh, with – it was Carl Atkins, I think, right? Is how you said his name, Carl Atkins? Um, Ted Sheriff Lobo. Claude Akins, yes. Um, I, I I miss TV like that. I really do. It's just there. There's no, you know, there's there's no way to compare the two fairly. There just isn't. No, there is, and, <laughs> I asked Dad one time, and I said, "How come you know you didn't keep a whole bunch of stuff?" And he said, "Because none of us thought what we were doing was important. Yeah, we were just going to work. Yeah." That's so there's a lot less ego, a lot less self importance. Yeah. And, and they had fun with what they were doing. And yeah. the Motion Picture Hospital's motto is we take care of our own. Yeah. And it's it true with that generation. I don't know if it holds true with today's generation, but there are still people within that circle that if I called them up right now and said I needed something because I'm John's daughter, they would do anything I needed in the world. Yeah. See, we were having a conversation the other day, me and a friend. Uh, you know, they just announced that um, they were they're going to let Mel Brooks film History of the World Part Two as a as a series, and um, right. Tim and Wanda Sykes. And my friend said, "Do you think it's going to be any good?" And I said, "You know, I said this is my unbridled opinion on it. I said if they do what I think they're going to do." They're going to completely destroy Mel's legacy because they're going to meddle in it and they're going to completely ruin it. I said. That's funny because right now we are in development of turning my dad's book, The Monterey Mitchum Boys, into a limited series. Oh, wow. And I've had people say, oh, well, are you just going to sell it? And I said, no. Yeah. I'm not going to allow somebody who doesn't really know them. Or know what these yes. people are. Just destroy it. Right. The point is, they met remarkable human beings. Yes. Their lifetime, and they all deserve recognition because they have a lot of lessons to teach people. Yeah. And it's not just to make it into a corny thing and make it into Uncle Bob's pot bust or you know. A, right. A, on Facebook, complete strangers were going into in-depth conversation with themselves as how many affairs they thought my uncle had. And I kind of turned it around and I said, should we start talking about how many affairs your uncle's had? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's just... Yeah. Like it, I said, it's... Uh, it doesn't need to be seedy. There's so many yeah. brilliant, wonderful things that they've done and people yeah. that they've met. So, yeah. no, I'm not just going to sell it freehand and let somebody else do what they want to do with it. That's not going to mm. happen. So let me ask this, because I don't even know why I'm thinking of this, but one of the people, one of the few people from that era that I physically cried 
overpassing because I loved him so much. And just one of the, to me, one of the true brilliant comedians of the time. Um, did your dad ever work with Don Rickles on anything? Yeah, he was a good friend of Uncle Bob's. Yes. Yeah. I... And Jonathan Winters, they were all yes. I admired Don so much. He, he was such a unique... He was the only man I ever seen or saw who could completely roast you and say the meanest things and people would be in tears laughing about it. He could make fun of Sammy and Sammy would be in tears. He could make fun of Dean about drinking and being a fall down drunk and Dean would be in tears. He'd make fun of Wanda Sykes about being ugly and Wanda would be in tears because he had such a unique way of being able to do it and everybody knew at the end of the day that he was truly one of the kindest men and I physically cried. I didn't know the guy. I never met him. But I physically cried when Don Rickles died because he was yeah, such a... Of yeah, it was... There will never, ever, ever be anyone who's remotely close to being able to do what what he did, you know, in, in the way he did it. Um, I've heard Lisa Lampanelli do it, and she's funny... You know, and and Jeffrey Ross does a good job for what he does, but they're by no means <laughs> even in the same universe is what Don was. And you know, I just, I he is he is one person. That, that era of people went through so much. Yeah. You know, growing up in the depression. I mean, one of the funniest stories that, that, that I've had validated is that when Dad and Uncle Bob were hobos and, and Dad rode the rails four times from the East Coast back again before he was 16. Oh, wow. So they, they, were, hard, they were hardcore at it, you know? And But the two of them were ended up in a little hobo shit and with history, with COVID now, it's kind of interesting with the flu pandemic that was going on at that point the right. sheriffs would go out and grab the hobos and give them an inoculation without saying any you know anything about it they just grab you and give you a shot so dad and uncle bob were in this little hobo shack now wrap your brain around this with three other people they were in there with will greer they were in there with Woody Guthrie and with with um, Burl Ives. Okay. Now that's quite the combination right there. Yeah. And when the news came, they all jumped out the window, but the big one got stuck and he got the inoculation. But the idea of Dad being in a hobo shack with Woody Guthrie alone is just amazing. I was able to tell Arlo that, and he said he'd never heard that story, and he was just thrilled. Yeah. I know it wasn't... It wasn't, uh, I guess, a rare thing um, for those guys, because I know my mother uh, was in foster care 
when she was a teenager, and her foster father was very, very good friends with Red Skelton. And my mom has told me many stories about, you know, Red coming over for dinner and them having dinner or going to restaurants. And, and he would tell stories of how a lot of his characters were based on real people that he knew, like hobos yeah. that he knew in, yeah. in different I'm things. Saying, and Dad was, Dad was working on a Red Skelton show the night I was born. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Yeah, I... Red was another one who's, you know, again, so unique in what he could do. And it's just, like I said, they don't make people like that. And it's so sad well, that... They, they lived life and they went through experiences. Yeah. They didn't do method acting. They, they lived, you yeah. know. It, Uncle Bob was actually, it's not a joke. He was actually put on a chain gang in Georgia. Oh, wow. And And he was... 16 when he got arrested for vagrancy <laughs> and was in jail and he was skinny he had rickets he wasn't the big buff super right. stud he was a skinny little kid and they put him in jail and they finally took him before the judge on Friday and the judge started announcing that Uncle Bob was being seen for uh, robbing a shoe store and Uncle Bob stood up and said excuse me your honor when did this alleged robbery take place and he said yesterday he said if you check your record you've been housing me since Tuesday so people started to giggle and it embarrassed the judge and he put him on a chain gang in <laughs> Georgia and he escaped from it but he had lesions on his leg from the shackle and when he swam through the swamp it got infected and by the time he got back to my grandmother the doctor wanted to amputate his leg and she managed to to fix it with herbs and things from out in the out in the garden in the woods and years later he read this brilliant brilliant script and he said i want to do it where is it going to be filmed and they said georgia and he told the studio i got a small problem and they said well what is it and he said i escaped so they paid the restitution and Cape Fear was made. Wow. I I know this is... You don't have experiences like that anymore. My dad yeah. was on a three-masted schooner at 17 and mm. was in a hurricane and lost the mast. And then they ran out of gas. And then a whale attacked the ship at 17. <laughs> you know, 17-year-olds now play video games or, or do whatever they do. Yeah. I know my cousin Scott, um, during his ignorant teenage years, almost ended up on a chain gang in Georgia. Uh, we went to visit my Uncle Bob. My Uncle Bob lives uh, in Cleveland, Georgia, uh, north of Gainesville, just as you cross the Tennessee line into Georgia uh, in the mountains. And this was uh, around 1983 or so. And... We were there, and my cousin being, at the time, he thought he was going to be a skinhead. And, you know, he was all into the whole skinhead thing, and he was running his mouth and causing a bunch of chaos in town. And the sheriff got called, and the sheriff showed up, and he's running his mouth, talking trash. And the sheriff, the typical old southern, 
sheriff, you know, told me, he's like, boy, you need to shut your mouth before something happens. And Scott's like, well, he's like, I don't have to shut up. I'm an American citizen. I have rights. And the sheriff smacked him across the mouth and told his deputy, he's like, put this boy in the back of the car. And Scott's like, you can't do that. I'm an American citizen. I have rights. And the sheriff turned and he looked at Scott and with the most serious look ever told Scott, he's like, boy, he said, you ain't in America no more. You in Georgia. <laughs> That Scott like, holy shit, did he just say that? And Scott looked at me like, what did he just say? And we were both, we just both fell silent. So, of course, I ran, got my Uncle Bob. And my Uncle Bob went down and he talked to the sheriff. And, you know, they worked everything out like they worked everything out. And uh, got home and he told my cousin Scott, he's like, boy, he's like, let me tell you something. He's like, you almost fucked around and disappeared. And Scott's like, what do you mean by that? And he explained the whole thing about, you know, the Deep South and chain gangs and, you know, prison camps that didn't exist and shit like that. And the, no yeah, the, the look on Scott's face. And, you know, after that, Scott never got in trouble again. Like that scared him straight, man. Like he just... You know, but when the sheriff said that, he's like, boy, you ain't in America no more. You in Georgia. We were just like, like what? <laughs> you know, it, sunglasses. it was, it reminded me I, years later, uh, when they did in the heat of the night, um, the, the Carol Connor, when he played Bill Gillespie, that's what it reminded me of. It was that he was that type of character that the sheriff was. And um, he, he very much had that Bill Gillespie, Bill Gillespie demeanor. And um, it was eye-opening because, you know, being from the north, being from from Michigan, you know, <laughs> we were used to that kind of way, you know. And it's starkly, starkly different than the deep south, you know. And... Um, it, when he said it, it, I mean, it was like he slapped us because it was just like, wait, what did he say? <laughs> what do you mean we're not in America, you know? And um, we're like, yep, you know, my brain immediately kicked in. It was like, okay, I think this is where I need to just shut the fuck up. Because, uh, you know, <laughs> and I did. I shut up and I went and got you Uncle Bob. Dad, what's, you know, it's, the things that dad and uncle bob went through i look at, yeah. at people today and say, they, there's no way that they could handle that kind of yeah. experience yeah and that's, and that's that's what makes the difference yeah and that's exactly it like i even now like i said i i watch my grandpa i look at my grandpa 95 years old and the things he does and i just i'm so amazed by it because even at 50 i don't have half the energy that my grandfather has in it it kills me, like, it's like, man, like, how do you get up at, you know, five, six o'clock in the morning still? My grandfather's been retired since 1979, and he's never slept in a single day. He still gets up like he got up every morning and went to work, and he still makes dinner and eats at four o'clock, and he's still, you know, I mean, he's so still set in those ways, Um we tried about a year ago 
to buy my grandfather a cell phone. Well, that could have been an episode of a comedy series in and of itself because I don't know what we were thinking trying to buy the 90-year-old guy a cell phone because what do I need a cell phone for? I don't know. We thought yeah, before, so well, yeah I was like, we thought you might want to call somebody. Well, what do I got that's that? What, what do I got that thing on the wall for? And I was like, but that's a landline. You can't use it while you're out and about. He's like, ain't nobody important enough around these days for me to want to call while I'm out. <laughs> and we're stood there arguing with him for 30 minutes about why you should have this cell phone. Well, what if something happens to you? You know, what if you, uh, have a heart attack or something. He's like, then I'll just be dead. You know, <laughs> I was like, there was nothing we could come up with that was going to dissuade him to take this cell phone. So I ended up no. taking the cell phone back, you know, and it was, and then taking it back, I thought to myself, what the hell convinced me to think that I could convince him to get a cell phone? He still has his old 1970s Zenith TV that he watches, you know, the big old floor models. With the stereo on the top and all of that, you know. Can I get you a new TV? Yeah. Yeah. Can I get you a new TV? Nope. Why? Well, don't you want a new TV? Nothing wrong with the one I have. Yeah, exactly. Why waste money? It's old. (laughs) He's like, yeah. My grandmother one time looked at Dad and said, why do you drive the... Chevy that you have. Why don't you have a pretty car like, like Bob? And Dad said, because I don't have the payments that Bob has. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's such an amazing, where do people, I guess let's give them information. Where do they find the CD that they can hear? Where do you have, it's called the Mitchum Trust, right? Is the website where they find all the information and no, all the stuff. John Mitchum World. John Mitchum or World. Just, or just johnmitchum.com. John and Mitchum. that's got the website has all of the 50 contributors on there so they can see everybody who's done something. You can hear clips from it. You can read different parts of why the different poems were written, how they were written, how everything came about. Like, like you were saying, you know, it took seven years to get Wilford Brimley's track recorded not because Wilford didn't want to do it right but Wilford didn't like being around people and <laughs> kept moving further and further away and I had to finally find a recording studio that would drive out to his ranch and record him <laughs> so it, it was quite the undertaking a lot of patience yeah. but it's it's on John Mitchum world or John Mitchum.com and it's $40 for the set with $5 shipping, but if you're buying multiple, then just $10, and I can put it in a priority box, or it's on Amazon. But with the thing that we're so proud of being in Cowboys and Indians today, if anybody wants it between now and the 20th, I'll actually wrap the CD for you and put in a gift card. Nice. That is so generous. Um, For the listeners... Please go check out this website. Please go back. Look in the IMDb and and the different places on YouTube. Watch the clips that we've discussed. Watch the other stuff by all of these great people that we've talked about. Because it's really an era that is so full of 
amazing performances that you can watch over and over and still be amazed by everything and the technique that went into it and um you know you can celebrate those that we've lost and appreciate those that are still here like Clint who um again well into his 90s is still making brilliant movies like Cry Cry Macho um that we I just recently seen and uh, you know just again still blows my mind that he has the ability to to make films like that in special on Clint as a little inside heads up they had me sign a release because they're going to be using a lot of clips <coughs> oh wow so there's going to be a really wonderful Warner Brothers tribute to Clint coming out in the near future oh beautiful I have to watch that then because it's just I don't know Heartbreak, Heartbreak Ridge is probably one of my all time favorite I know people love Full Metal Jacket and I love Full Metal Jacket for what it is uh, but to me Heartbreak Ridge was always such a far superior film <laughs> to a uh, full metal jacket just for all of the great characters and the, the scenes and, and just Clint being Clint, you know, like, um, you know, it was one of them performances that truly is one of a kind and, um, you know, in Cadillac man, if you've never seen Cadillac man, uh, you get to see Clint and Robin Williams together and just, one of a kind performances. Um, so, yes. Um, Cindy, thank you so much for taking. Oh, thank the, you for having me. Yes, for taking the time to do this and uh, for all of the hard work that you do to keep this era alive in people's memory and honoring your dad and your uncle and all of the wonderful contributions that they have made. Um, know that there are people out there like me that still <laughs> uh, truly appreciate this and um, we're so thankful that you're oh, doing this. Thank you. It's, it, all of them can't be forgotten. You yeah. know, their, their work is too important and they were too important yeah. to, to just let them slip away without any memory. Yeah, there's... I, I have... I've discussed this before, but I have I have an idea of what I want. I want to. I got a series of books that I want to write, and um, they're based on different things. But the gist of it is, is we are quickly losing that generation, the knowledge that they hold, the stories, the oral history. Um, my dad, being a truck driver, I have long wanted to take six months or a year and just travel the country and go from truck stop to truck stop and talk to the old truckers that are left that were around during the seventies and the late eighties that are those old school truckers and hear those stories and that history and write a book about it. And then also, yes. And then also people like my grandfather and Clint, uh, that older generation, you know, go travel around to nursing homes and just sit and listen to the stories 
and the history that they have before we lose it. And again, write a series of books. Um, and, and, you know, the, the one title that keeps um, popping into my brain, I, I've never really thought of a proper title, but I've always jokingly, lovingly called it Tales from Grandpa's Table. Um, That's a brilliant title. You know, just because when you think about, you know, you sit around the table and you just not even talk so much, but you just listen to the stories and listen to them talk about family and talk about so many things, you know, they're too many, too many people don't have time to do that. Yeah. I just, it's so important to me. And, you know, I always tell myself if I just had the money to be able to spend that time and go out and do it, and I really think over the next year or so, I'm going to make it my personal mission to somehow, whether it's through GrowFundMe or if I can get a loan or whatever, uh, I'm going to make it my mission yeah, I to. to I, I did talk about going back to Mike McGreevy, who was on Riverboat with Dad. Mm-hmm. And he was also on the way west with Dad and Uncle Bob. He's the one who got to marry Sally Fields. Oh, wow. <laughs> Mike, Mike and I did a little teaser role um, you can find on YouTube called A Hat, A Gun, and A Horse. And we interviewed a lot of the Western heroes like Bob Fuller and Alex Cord and interviewed and Johnny Crawford and interviewed them about growing up and why they wanted to do Westerns when they grew up. Wow. So that would be a fun little interview show for you to watch yeah and there's and there's a lot of actors too martin cove marty as you call him you know is another one who he's been around for so long now and he's done so many brilliant things in action movies and the karate kid and cobra kai and you know he's been in westerns and he's been he knows probably so many people um you know in in people sam elliott Again, who is just an American treasure to me because Sam is, you know, he can be, yeah, he he can be so gruff, but he can be so funny and he can tell the funniest line with a straight face. That's what, you know, like when I seen the ranch, when they put the ranch out, um, I, to me, I was reading about it before I watched it and I was like, it's just that 70s show set on a, on a cow farm. And then I read the list of people and I was like, okay, it's probably going to be good because Sam's in it. And Sam makes that entire series to me. Ashton is cool, you know, and everyone else, Deborah Winger and all that. But Sam just, you know, when he was on Justified, Justified is my favorite TV series of all time because, again, it harkens back to that, just that old school type well, of style. Back to Deadwood. Yeah. Which goes back to Lucy Lyles, who was one of the ones who told me I had to do the CD. Yes. Lucy was one of the producers of Deadwood. That, and that's, when you said that name, I was like, wow, that is somebody who, again, doesn't get um, uh, Russell Russell Green. Am I saying it right? Is it, or is it Graham? Graham Russell? Russell? Yeah. Graham Russell, right? The native actor? Yeah, Graham Green. Graham Greene. Yes, that's it. I knew it was... Uh, um, again, another person who, 
you when you see him, you know who he is. You don't always put a name with it, but you know the face. You know the yeah. you know the roles. You when you see him, you know. And again, it just this is why I, I, I say to you as an audience, go back and watch these because there's so many many great things, uh, more than you could possibly ever name. Um, so we are going to wrap this up because I have taken uh, so much of her time and she has been so gracious to come on. Uh, this is Cindy Mitchum Asbill. Uh, she is the daughter of John Mitchum, the niece of Robert Mitchum. 800 TV episodes and 60 films. That is what you can search uh, about her father and I promise you almost every single one of them are brilliant. <laughs> um, and that's not even going into what Robert did, uh, which is probably even more <laughs> um, <laughs> in depth. So um, if you started tomorrow, you could probably watch something until you die and still probably not get through the entirety of it. Um <laughs> So uh, entertain yourself they with that. Busy. Do what? They were busy. You know, so many were. Like, I didn't realize how much stuff John Wayne had. I looked it up recently because uh, yeah. I, I said to myself, I'm going to sit and watch everything John Wayne did. And I went on IMDb and I thought, okay, maybe I'm not going to watch every single thing <laughs> John Wayne did. I'll be dead before I get through it all, you know? Um because they really had no. I mean, you think John Wayne, you, you know, you think Hondo and El Dorado and uh, the yeah. all these great Those films, characters. but you don't realize that he did hundreds of films that are beyond that, you know. And I had no idea that he did so many films um, and so many even TV shows and different things. And even Clint yeah, is another one. A different. A different world, you know? Yeah. Mike McGreevy again was laughing with me one day and he said that especially in the 60s, there were two two casting directors that were the principal directors. And every actor, it was their dream to get into a stable of one of the two casting people, meaning that they were the ones that their go-to people. Right. And Mike started laughing and he said, your father was in both stables. <laughs> agent calling at like six o'clock at night and say you've got a seven o'clock call in the morning or a six o'clock call in the morning the messenger is bringing you a script right now where dad didn't even audition he would just you know they would right. like do a rewrite and they would need somebody that that dad had a photographic memory and they knew that he was reliable and dependable and so they just bring him a script and dad would go on the set at six in the morning and, and do it Wow, that's it's unheard of now to do that. Yeah, it it really is. It just it's such a great thing. Thank you for all of these stories. I again, I'm so honored to oh, have had you and been on and here. Thank you for appreciating all of them. Yes, and uh, I truly hope that we can do this again uh, down the road. And um, you know, if there's anything else that comes up and you do want to come on and discuss it or anything like that, or you want to tell more stories, then by all means know that I'm always here and I, you are welcome back uh, whenever you, so you want. Much. That's so kind of you. Thank you. 
Thank you. Yes, you have a wonderful night. We are going to wrap this up. Cindy Mitchum, Asbill, look up what we've told you to look up and uh, enjoy. Remember, peace, kindness goes a long way. Treat each other with kindness. Uh, you never know when a kind word, a smile, um, anything like that can just completely change a person's day uh, from bad to good. So uh, with that said, this is a noise report, and uh, we're going to go ahead and shut up now. Mm-hmm. <laughs>